This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, your regular host. Uh, my regular co-host, Todd Pruitt, cannot be with us today. Unfortunately, he's been called away on a pastoral emergency. So once again, I'm going to be flying solo for the next 20, 25 minutes. As I've said before, if you think that the program massively increases in quality when Todd is away, please write to the producer and let him know. Um, you don't have to put up with Todd if you don't want to. That's the kind of message I'm trying to communicate here. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to be with you all again. Uh, and it's a particular pleasure today to have a guest. I've been wanting to meet this uh, person for quite a while. Uh, she has just authored what looks like a very substantial and probably very important book with Marvin Olasky. Many of you, of course, will have heard the name Marvin Olasky. He was for many, many years associated uh, with World Magazine. In many ways, he was the guiding force behind World Magazine. Uh, he is one of the men who's written a number of very, very uh, good books over the last few decades, including most recently a reflection upon uh, his own father, a moving reflection. Uh, but he's now written or co-written the uh, book, The Story of Abortion in America, a street-level history, 1652 to 2022, with the person who I'm delighted to say is a guest on the program today, and that is Leah Sabas. Uh, Leah lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with her husband, uh, Stephen. have to say, I was in Grand Rapids in 96 for six months as a visiting prof at Calvin College. Uh, it was an there was only one place you could really get a burger and a glass of beer in Grand Rapids in 1996. When I went back last weekend and drove around, it's become like the hipster centre of the entire universe. Who could have predicted that this tiny hole in the wall in Michigan would now be centre? It would be the equivalent of Munster for Anabaptists. It is now hipster central, it seems, uh, in North America. Well, anyway, my guest, uh, Leah Sabas, uh, lives there. She reports on abortion for World News. She, too, is a, a World News Group person, uh, writes the weekly Vitals Roundup, a newsletter of pro-life news. Leah, it's a great pleasure to have you uh, on the program today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. First question. What was it like writing a book with Marvin Olasky? <laughs> um, good question. It was, well, you know, he was actually the person that hired me. Um, I, when I was an intern with World News Group, I worked directly with him and his wife. And um, to be honest, writing the book with him wasn't all that different from uh, writing articles for World News Group that he gets to edit. 
Um, you know, he's a really encouraging editor, but also very ruthless. Like he'll tell you if something's not good. So we went through several drafts of specifically my chapters. I would send them to him. He would, uh, you know, check it out, give me some ideas, make some edits. Um, but you know, very, a very encouraging process. Um, I honestly working with Marvin has given me a lot of, uh, I think courage when it comes to writing, I think, oh, you know, if Marvin thinks I can do this, I can do this. <laughs> so, oh, that's lovely yeah, to hear. So he's been, yeah, he's been a great mentor to me. Yeah. My, my lasting memory of Marvin was I, I'd only ever written critically about him, I think, and he dropped me a note and he was so nice and kind. I then felt really, really guilty for having criticized <laughs> him. And uh, a couple of years um, later, we actually met and, uh, Yes, I, I I like Marvin a lot. He's a, a delightful person, and it it was a pleasure to uh, it was a pleasure when our paths finally crossed that he was such a gracious and kind and generous person to somebody yes. who'd had a bit of a go at him online at one or two points. So I too am very <laughs> grateful to Marvin for his yes. uh, for his delightful personality on that front. Mm-hmm. Why the book? Why this particular book? I mean, it's a substantial history. Uh, what was it that motivated you writing this book? Yeah, well, I guess that story is mostly Marvin's. Um, he asked me back in 2019 to help him write the book. So he had already kind of decided at, uh, well, I guess back up a little bit. So he had thought, you know, I need to rewrite a book that I wrote in in the 1990s. So this was a book called, um, abortion rights. Marvin wrote it back then, and he wanted to do an update on it. Um, But as I remember him telling me kind of the process of like uh, deciding to write this book as opposed to just an update of abortion rights, he explains that as he was doing research for the update, he realized, wow, there's a lot more material available online than there was in the 90s, obviously. Um, you know, there's there are these online databases where you can find old newspaper clippings that were not necessarily available to him at the time. Um, he used to like have to go in person to uh, archives or a library to actually thumb through things and find these articles. Um, but just in searching online and online databases, there was so much new information available that he realized, okay, we got to do a, to- a total rewrite, like not just a rewrite, but a new book. <laughs> so it's it, it uses some material from that old book uh, from the 90s, but it also just goes a lot deeper, includes a lot more stories. Uh, and obviously we have the update from the 90s till 2022, which was mainly my, my portion of the book. Um, and and another big motivator for writing this book specifically, a street level history of abortion, is we wanted to go beyond, say, like what the justices wrote in the Roe v. Wade decision in 1970. You know, they make assertions about the legal history of abortion in America. But Marvin, in doing some of the old the research for the um, very early history of abortion in America. He was able to search the archives of Maryland, for instance, um, which they're available online, the archives of Maryland. And he found some cases from um, early America involving abortions and is able to see how these early courts actually handled these cases. And in fact, unlike what um, they would lead you to believe in the Roe v. Wade opinion in which the justices write that abortion was acceptable in early America, up until quickening, which is about um, 
five months when the woman can feel the baby moving inside of her. In fact, there are early cases that Marvin found of babies who are aborted and one where they saw, you know, a midwife saw that this baby was only three months along. Um, and yet the person who forced this abortion on the woman who, you know, was pregnant ended up going on trial for murder. So, our, so these are different stories, like street level stories that show us the reality of what abortion was like in the country early on. Um, and it kind of debunks some of those assertions from, say, the Roe v. Wade opinion in 1973. So that's another big motivator here to kind of get at some of those sweet level. And I guess I should explain some of those terms, but um, sweet level would be kind of like at the level of ideas, at the level of law in some cases, rather than what's actually happening. What are the actual decisions everyday people are making and communities are making? So we, we kind of get into those street level stories, on the ground stories of how this issue affected people. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things I find striking about the book is the the use of what a lot of historians would call anecdotal kind of evidence, the, the narratives, the micro-narratives of individual lives. One of the things that I think perhaps has caught some, some pro-life people off guard, but it certainly emerged in the in the I suppose nearly 12 months now, sort of nine months since uh, Roe was overturned, uh, is one, how uh, deep commitment to abortion lies in certain uh, sectors of American society. And secondly, how powerful stories are. You know, as soon as Roe was overturned, uh, you suddenly start seeing stories about rape victims, incest victims, very young girls uh, getting pregnant. And I think only uh, only the hardest-hearted person would say those don't pull on the heartstrings. You know, it's one thing to talk about abortion in the abstract. It would be quite another to sit as a pastor in your study and have a couple come to you with their 12-year-old daughter who's been raped and is now pregnant and hold to your pro-life guns. It's, it's tough. And I think one of the things that your book does well is it provides stories. If we're going to win the battle you know, in some ways, we've won the battle for the law at the federal level at this point. But the real battle is the battle for hearts and minds, the battle for the imagination. And that's where I think uh, this book uh, scores very highly. Are there a couple of stories that you might sort of pull out as being particularly powerful ones uh, in the research that you've done? Yeah, well, um, I guess the one that I talk about a lot in interviews like this is just the very first recorded and confirmed abortion in America. Um, and I think that one sticks out to me mainly because it is the one that we start out with. It's in 1652. Um, it's the first confirmed recorded abortion, although there were earlier records that suggested perhaps there was this one abortion case in the 1620s. But, you know, it's not confirmed because there are some records missing. But this one in particular in 1652, this is a case of a man named Captain William Mitchell um, impregnating a servant girl, Susan Warren, and then forcing an abortifacient on her in a poached egg. He's like force feeding her this poached egg and the baby dies. And like I was saying earlier, unlike what we've heard about early America, um, the reality was that the community around them saw this as a terrible thing. Um, he went on trial. Captain Mitchell went on trial for murder. He didn't actually um, 
get convicted of that just because there there was a lack of evidence, you know, lack of certainty for everyone um, kind of making this decision. But he still suffered from kind of being involved in this abortion. He um, got removed from his high political office. He wasn't allowed to have any political office again after that. But also what I find interesting is how the community around him really linked his involvement with this abortion to his view of God and view of the scriptures. Um, He was actually seen as a blasphemer in the community. He referred to Jesus and the Holy Spirit as a man and a pigeon. He obviously wasn't taking scripture seriously. And yet the community around him saw that as a bad thing. You know, they, they saw him as being irresponsible um, and taking advantage of this young woman and her and their unborn child who he effectively murdered. But also even seeing Susan Warren's reaction to this um, abortion, although she in this case was very much of a victim because of the circumstances surrounding the abortion, like it wasn't her like actually taking it, it was him kind of forcing this on her. Um, but she also recognized kind of the sin involved in getting pregnant outside of marriage. But she also called it a sin to get this abortion. Like, what a great sin that we took this life or he, Captain Mitchell, took the life of this unborn child. So, and I think that kind of sets the tone well for the rest of the book where we talk about not just the law or how the community reacted to abortion, but also what was the view of scripture? And how did that affect their understanding of the abortion issue? Because they had a very limited knowledge of anatomy, you know, unborn life. They didn't have ultrasound technology, so they didn't know all the things that we know today. And even the things that they did, quote unquote, know, some of it wasn't very accurate about unborn development. But they knew what the Bible had to say, and that heavily influenced um, kind of how they approached abortion cases. So, yeah, so that's kind of that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the book uh, and some of the themes that we see. So what do you think it is in in, in American study? When, when is it that I mean, I hesitate to use the term public opinion because I know the public is still heavily divided uh, uh, over abortion, at least certainly over abortion, you know, later term abortion. When is it that the pendulum starts to swing towards abortion being seen as a, a a civic good, as something that actually benefits women, benefits society. What are the factors, the forces in play at the sort of the street level, which is where your your history is is rooted? What are the factors in play for that? When what sort of time period are we looking at when that occurs? Yeah, well that's actually hard because I feel like it's pretty sneaky. Um at least, you know, how the public views this. It, it's kind of sneaky. Because um, there's times in, uh, you know, in the 1800s, there's Madame Ristel, who was an abortionist in New York City um, at a time when abortion was illegal. Um, And yet she made a lot of money off of this. Like she made money. So obviously she had clients. There were people coming to her. She knew all the secrets of this community um, of, of different people in New York City who had come to her or who had sent relatives or maybe lovers to her for abortions. So, like, she was seen as a very wealthy, well-off, and and sometimes in some cases kind of um, a respectable abortionist, although 
um, I guess that that was limited. I think later we see more of those respectable abortionists, but she knew what she was doing. Um, she managed to go under the radar when it came to the law. And it's interesting that, you know, it, it was largely because of a lack of public pressure in a lot of cases that she wasn't getting arrested or the law wasn't being enforced against her. And it wasn't until um, people in the community started to speak out about, hey, we know, you know, what's going on down the street at Madame Restell's. We know she's performing abortions like we need to do something. But in general, that wasn't the case. In general, she, you know, she was able to continue. And it, even though everyone knew what she was doing. So so there you have a case of, an, you know, in the 1800s, it's not like a pro-abortion community where people are going on marches saying, you know, protect women's rights, my body, my choice sort of thing. Um, but there was still a level of, it seems as if people saw it as a public good to some extent. Um, or else why wouldn't they have said anything, you know, earlier to to get her behind behind bars? But I think some of the big changes that we really see in public opinion come just a little bit before the Roe v. Wade decision um, in the story of Sherry Finkbein. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but um, this is a mom who who was well known. She she was on national television um, and she she found out that she was actually taking a drug that was known to cause birth defects and she was pregnant and she found out, you know, I'm pregnant. I've been taking this drug. She decided she wanted to try to get an abortion. Now, at the time, there were these like doctor hospital committees that would decide whether they would allow abortions in certain cases. And initially, the hospital that she went to decided, yeah, we'll allow you to get an abortion, even though it's not risking your life. They kind of like fudged the rules a little bit to make it so that she could get one. But then when she she told national news outlets <laughs> about this and there was such a backlash that the um, the hospital was like, never mind, you can't get an abortion. Well, you know, Sherry Finkbein is like she really felt like she needed to. She didn't want to give birth to a, a baby with disabilities or something. Um, so she ended up actually going overseas to get an abortion. Now, at the time when you're like, when they were polling the public about this issue, there was actually a lot of sympathy for Sherry Finkbein, um, people who thought, oh yeah, she should be able to get an abortion. So obviously that's different from a situation where the mother's life is at risk, but for some reason, people thought it would be okay for her to kill her unborn child just because of the possibility of mm. birth defects. So there you kind of see that shift a little bit. And it wasn't until kind of after that story that a lot of like Lawrence later, he was a big champion for abortion rights around the time of Roe v. Wade. After that story, um, he was able to start getting things published in in publications that previously rejected him about abortion. So there are these stories, these kind of sympathetic cases where for some reason people people seem to think it was OK when maybe they wouldn't just think abortion for any reason was okay. So, you know, it's that yeah. slight shift. And then we come to today and there are people who will say, oh yeah, I think you should be able to get an abortion for whatever reason. And I don't think we would have heard that from, you know, just everyday people as much in the 1970s, but a lot has happened since then. Yeah. I think you see that in the, uh, 
safe and rare yes. was the original sort of Democrat mantra on this. Yes. And then when you move forward to sort of the 2016 election with Hillary Clinton and beyond, uh, really it's uh, it's no longer that at all. That is regarded as a, a betrayal of the abortion cause almost, uh, yeah. as, as far too conservative yeah. a position to hold. Um, I was actually, yeah, yeah, today I was reading a, um, a news release from the government of Massachusetts and the governor made some statement about how abortion is safe, legal, and effective. And I was like, well, mm. there's the new word. <laughs> no longer rare. Yeah. It's effective. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was interesting kind of seeing that 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 switch. Yeah, I think it underlies a, a growing commitment to individual autonomy. Mm -hmm. I think the myth of individual autonomy, but a growing commitment to the notion of individual autonomy uh, in our society. We only have a few minutes left now, Leah, but um, you know, one of the things that whenever I write a book, I always learn stuff. And, and by the time I finish the book, I fundamentally changed my thinking on one or two things. Uh, what did you learn in the? What did you learn that was surprising in the writing of this book? Have you did you learn anything in other than you know how to write with Marvin Olasky, <laughs> which must have been a learning experience in itself? But what did you learn about the story of abortion that? that strengthened your convictions, changed your convictions, challenged you in some way? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I, that I learned that surprised me the most were from Marvin's portions of the book. Um, for instance, the story I told you of Captain Mitchell and Susan Warren, um, the fact that he went on trial for murder, I hadn't realized that was, you know, that's how they handled abortion cases early on. Another thing that I learned was about doctors um, and the medical community and the knowledge that the medical community has had about unborn life for for a long time. So there were doctors back in the 1800s who were asserting that unborn life begins at fertilization. And they knew that when they have a pregnant woman come to them, they no longer just have one patient. They have two patients that they're caring for. That unborn child, no matter how small it is, no matter how early it is in its development, is a distinct human individual. And you have doctors like Hugh Hodge talking about this in public lectures. Um, that blew me out of the water of just seeing how early, early on the medical community seemed to really have a consensus about this, even though in the Roe v. Wade opinion, the majority of the justices say that there's no consensus about when life begins that sure maybe that was true about historians or legal scholars but it certainly didn't seem to be true about doctors <laughs> um so yeah just hearing those stories of their knowledge of the issue was very educational for me and helpful as well yeah it's fascinating uh, it reminds me of i i this sounds odd. I'm sort of an admirer of Peter Singer's work, not on the grounds that I admire Peter Singer's thought, but I do admire the clarity and precision with which he articulates himself and the, uh, his ideas, and, and he pulls no punches. But I've always, always thought as well that there's a sense in which Peter Singer's work arrives as a way of getting out from under the life question. It's, okay, we have to concede that life begins at conception, what other justifications can we now come up with for 
uh, abortion. Oh, let's develop personhood theory. That that kind of gets us out of that hole at that particular point in time. And and you know what you just said makes me yeah. This has been going on a whole lot longer than uh, um, than we might ever have imagined. What gives you hope for the future? I mean, pro lives had a great year in some ways, but we also, I think, now see more clearly uh, the depth of the the problem in in the moral imagination of society. And we see the extreme backlash that has come as a result of the overturning of Roe. Uh, what gives you hope for the future on this front? Well, I think ultimate hope can only come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've just learned over the last few years reporting on this issue, how essential the gospel issue is to the issue of abortion. Um, there's so much brokenness on this issue. There's so much hurt. Women who have had abortions need to hear the gospel. Our culture that lauds abortion and calls it a good thing also need to hear the gospel. Um, so I think that that gives me the most hope and the most encouragement when I hear stories of people who maybe had abortions or who have been really pro-abortion, um, who now are submissive to the Lord and um, recognize that the, the grace and forgiveness they have because Christ took the punishment for sin when he died on the cross. So I, that's honestly, I know it's kind of like the Sunday school answer to give, but it's honestly been the most encouraging thing to me in yeah. the past few years as I've been writing about a very sad topic. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't mind hearing that Jesus is the answer on this program. Uh, whatever the question is, Jesus <laughs> has got to be there in the answer somewhere. So that's fine. And and it's a great book. I'm looking forward. I should be writing my review in the next month for Law and Liberty. Awesome. It's a great book. Uh, I, I think this... Uh, another book I've read this last year by a couple of friends of mine, Tearing Us Apart by Ryan Anderson and Alexandra de Sanctis. Um, that, I think, uh, is 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 a great book. And a lot of the power of that book comes from the stories that it tells as well. And I think this book, Story of Abortion in America, a street-level history, 1652 to 2022, by Marvin Olasky and Leah Savas, with a foreword by my friend uh, Robbie George, Professor McCormack Professor at Princeton University is something that should be on the shelf of, of all Christians, uh, particularly anybody interested in being more informed about the history of abortion. Uh, this book, I think, is a must read. So, Leah, thank you very much for spending time with us on the program today. We hope to get you back at uh, some point, if you're willing. Sure. Uh, and to all of you listening, thank you for listening to us. Please visit our website, mortificationspin.org, where you will have the opportunity, as always, to enter uh, a, a draw for a free copy. We have a couple of free copies of this book to give away. If you're not fortunate enough to, to win a copy, please buy a copy. It's published by Crossway. It's a substantial book. Uh, it will take you a little time to read it, but it will be well worth the time that you invest. While you're visiting our website, of course, if the spirit leads you to feel you want to make a donation, don't quench the spirit on this one. Please make that donation. In the meantime, all I can say is thanks very much for joining us. I hope to be back with my co-host, Todd Pruitt, next time.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful.